وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين وأن معهم إلى يوم الدين أشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له وأشهد أن محمدا عبده ورسوله I hope we have managed to get a good night's sleep uh, after a chaotic start yesterday. I'm just going to start off with some housekeeping rules again, and unfortunately I have to do this at the start of most sessions. Then I'm going to walk away and leave the platform in charge of Brother Imtiaz Damiel, and he'll introduce the speaker and talk about his background, and then the Sheikh will uh, deliver the lecture. So the, the, the house rules for a reminder for us, inshallah, we have to try and switch off our mobiles or put them on vibration, inshallah, please do that. It, it interrupts the lecture, the lecturer's thought, the train of thought, as well as it disturbs other people. And we need to switch them off because most of us tend to have musical ringtones as well, which are an additional distraction. Uh, secondly, recording. Brothers are still asking. Yes, you can. Brothers and sisters, you can record all the talks. You can use your own recording devices, place it wherever you like, make copies, and give to whomsoever you like as well. The only restriction is that in this conference you don't record from the platform. You don't place your devices on this table or on the platform here. But you can record from anywhere else you like. Uh, thirdly, I have to mention, we, unfortunately, we, we would appreciate if you would not eat or drink in the main halls. It creates too much of a burden to clean up afterwards and leaves again problems for people who come later. So no eating and drinking in the main halls. And finally... Please don't reserve any seats. Today is going to be very intensive. The last session is likely to finish about half past 12 at night or early morning. So it's going to be back-to-back -back lectures with just the breaks in between. Whether we attend them all or not, we, we cannot reserve any seats. So don't leave your book or coat or something like that on seats. When the talk finishes, if you're going, you've lost your seat. When you come back, you take the free seat available. Otherwise, that also interferes with people coming in and sitting in their vacant places and, uh, again, disturbs people too much. So four things. Switch off mobiles. You can record what you like, but not from the table. You please try and avoid eating and drinking. And finally, don't reserve seats when you go out of the hall. Jazakumullah khairan for the MTS. Thank you. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. Wassalatu wassalam ala rasulihil kareem. I begin by praising Allah and I ask Him to send His peace and blessings upon His Messenger, Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam. Today's topic, proof of the prophethood of Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam. It is a fundamental principle that nobody's claim can be accepted without proof, particularly if it is a big and lofty claim. The more advanced the claim, the more decisive and convincing proofs must be offered. Therefore, for those who have accepted the worldview based on divine unity as the foundation for their beliefs and their mode of viewing the world, whenever someone claims a particular relationship with God, the importance of the matter necessitates that it be examined carefully. One must look for the properties and characteristics that are necessary in guides of humanity in order to be able to recognize a true prophet. Given the significance of the rank of prophethood, the great responsibility borne by the prophets, and the role of their message in determining the different concerns of human life, prophets must be able to furnish decisive proofs for their claims to prophethood. The proofs must be of such a nature 
that it could be obtained only by means of God's infinite power, of forces that lie beyond nature. From the one who claims to possess a mission from heaven, to have a message from Allah, and to be in contact with another world, must perform deeds that lie beyond the confines of nature, deeds that will serve as his letters of credentials from the Creator and confirm his claim to be in contact with revelation. To prevent his servants from falling into the trap of false claimants to prophethood, Allah has provided his prophets with decisive proofs, so that the face of truth should never be obscured by veils of trickery, trickery and deceit. Just as the form of the entire scheme of being and the existence of all phenomena is a clear proof of the existence of God, each envoy is given clear and manifest proof of his relationship with the source of revelation. Hence, the demonstration of prophethood depends on the performance of deeds that transcends the limits set by natural norms and common laws, and the performance of such deeds is not possible without the permission of the Creator. So the question arises, what evidence do Muslims have to support the claim that Muhammad was a prophet of Allah? Did his life and mission provide any decisive proofs? What convincing arguments can we present to non-Muslims as a proof of the prophethood of Muhammad ﷺ? I can think of no one more suitable to deal with this topic and answer these questions than the present speaker, who has spent the last 20 years of his life debating non-Muslims and defending the prophethood of Muhammad ﷺ. Sheikh Shabir Ali was born in Annandale in Guyana and moved to Canada in 1978. He is the president of the Islamic Information and Dawa Center International, based in Toronto. He is also the host of a TV program, Let the Quran Speak, which is being viewed throughout Canada. He has also authored several booklets, which include Common Questions People Ask About Islam. Is Jesus God? The Bible Says No. 101 Contradictions in the Bible. The Plight of Women in the Old Testament. And Science in the Quran, to name just a few. Sheikh Shabir Ali also holds a degree in comparative religions and has represented Islam in numerous debates and dialogues with leading Christian, Jewish, and atheist scholars. He also gives public lectures on a variety of topics. With that, I would ask the speaker to commence his talk. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. Thank you, Brother Mfiyas, for such a generous uh, introduction. We begin by praising Allah, alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen, wa salatu wa ala rasul al-kareem. Now, when we talk about proving something, we want to know what sort of proof we might uh, look at. Uh, if we want to prove uh, a mathematical formula, there is a particular way of doing that. If we want to prove uh, a, a scientific hypothesis, uh, there is a particular method of doing that. If we want to prove a fact of history, there is a separate method of establishing that. If we want to prove that someone is a prophet of God, there has to be a method of, of looking at that as well. And in the introduction, Brother Imtiaz has uh, given us an excellent uh, view of the whole subject matter and uh, the task that lies uh, before us. We want to see if there is something about this man, Muhammad wasallam, that would mark him off as being under divine guidance. Now, basically, if we were to think about what a prophet is, we realize that a prophet uh, is uh, a human being uh, who is under uh, some special sort of influence from God, it, it, to an extent that this human being speaks on behalf of God. 
We want to know then if someone claims to be speaking on behalf of God, whether or not there is anything peculiar about him, anything that would mark him off as deserving of this particular status. Now, prophets uh, have uh, come and gone, and they have left the traces behind them of what they have taught and the way that they have lived. They have left followers and uh, communities behind them. The Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, left a book known as the Qur'an. And uh, by examining this book, we can have some impression of who the Prophet Muhammad was, peace be upon him, what he taught. And in the book itself, we will surprisingly find evidence of his prophethood. Now, if we are going to prove a proposition, we cannot start by assuming the proposition. Otherwise, we fall into what logicians call circular reasoning. We cannot assume the very fact that we want to prove. We have to start from a neutral position. Can we as Muslims then start from that neutral position? I think for the purpose of argument, yes, we can and we should. We must uh, in order to preserve our own academic integrity. If we are going to honestly approach this question, then we have to start from neutral ground. Assuming that we do not already believe in Muhammad as the prophet and messenger of Allah, what uh, sorts of analysis can we put the Quran through in order to judge this question? Is he or is he not a prophet of God? So in pursuing our proofs then, and to avoid circular reasoning, we cannot assume the proposition, nor can we assume anything that is so close to the proposition that if one assumed that, then he would assume the proposition. Uh, So we cannot uh, assume things that are particularly Muslim things. We have to start from neutral ground. In other words, we have to ask, what would a non-Muslim secular historian have to agree on if he were to do his history properly and carefully? And we can look at what has uh, been agreed on already. We can look at what non-Muslim historians have researched about the life of the Prophet Muhammad ﷺ and uh, what uh, have they concluded. So we can start with that as the basic facts, and we will see where the basic facts uh, lead us in this case. Now the basic facts as they lay it out have it that uh, there was a man, Muhammad, who lived some 1400 years ago. Uh, He claimed to be a prophet and messenger of God. He led a faith community. He made a hijra from Mecca to Medina, uh, where he eventually spent the last years of his life, and he passed away. He left a book known as the Quran, a book that was probably written down during his lifetime, but most definitely written down within a couple of decades uh, during the lifetime and during the rule of uh, one of his uh, successors after him, Osman. And that this book, uh, in its skeleton text, has been copied and reproduced uh, and is now used uh, throughout the Muslim world. These are the basic facts as we have it from secular non-Muslim historians. So if we start from this, what do we have? Now Gary Miller made a very important point. He said that if we ask the followers of another religion, what is the proof that you have that what you're claiming is true? Uh, They might point to some miracle that happened a number of years ago. Uh, Someone may say that our man rose from the dead 2,000 years ago. And uh, the proof of that is not available now because we do not see this person rising from the dead now. And in fact, when I debated with one such individual a couple of years ago in Atlanta, I kept uh, demanding of him to prove uh, his proposition. 
And in fact, it was more necessary for him to prove this proposition because if he cannot prove this proposition, then his man turns out to be a failure, a false messiah, according to the principles that they adopt. So he has admitted in his own writings that it is necessary for him to prove his proposition. And yet here he is and he cannot prove it until the host of the program, being a Christian herself, uh, had to ask him, well, Shabir has been asking you for the proof. Why don't you prove it now? And he said uh, that I cannot prove it now, that those who lived 2,000 years ago, they proved it and we just depend on what they have said. But Gary Miller made the important point that when a Muslim is asked for proof of his own proposition, prove to me that uh, Muhammad is the messenger of God, prove to me that your Islam is true, and the Muslim furnishes the Quran, which turns out to be his proof of the message itself. Now, I want to say something about that. In the past, prophets performed miracles, as Imtiaz has outlined in the introduction, and uh, the miracles drew the attention of people to the message that these prophets bore. In the case of the Quran, the Quran is its own miracle. So the Prophet's message, sallallahu alaihi wasallam, is its own miracle, drawing attention to itself. The benefit of this is that, whereas in the case of previous prophets, other prophets would succeed them and bring people back to the right path after they have strayed, in the case of the Prophet Muhammad, sallallahu alaihi wasallam, there is to be no other prophet coming after him. And so his message, being a lasting one until the Day of Judgment, is accompanied by its own intrinsic miracle, so that one who uh, is to examine the message finds the miracle in there as well. Now, starting with the neutral position of what would be generally accepted concerning the Prophet ﷺ, I want to put forward ten points. Ten points which, uh, together, will form a very strong cumulative case showing that the Prophet Muhammad indeed is a prophet of God. And by calling him Prophet Muhammad here in this speech, by, by saying sallallahu alayhi wa sallam after his name, I do not mean to prejudge the conclusion. So here we have ten points, which uh, will point in the same direction, all of them supporting each other and supporting the conclusion that Muhammad is a, the messenger of Allah as he claimed. The first point is that the Prophet Muhammad was sincere. Now, this is an important point, though it is not a sufficient proof in itself, because a person might be sincere, and yet he might be sincerely wrong, as we know a lot of people are. But it is important to establish that the Prophet Muhammad was sincere, because once we do that, we, we immediately dismiss any sort of claim or supposition or suspicion that the Prophet Muhammad was simply... Uh, concocting a book on his own and claiming it to be the word of God. You see, if he were doing that, then he were not sincere. And if he were sincere, then he was not doing that. As Gary Miller has put it uh, in, in, a, in a poignant manner, if the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, uh, was uh, spending his nights thinking, what am I going to say to the people tomorrow? meaning that he wants to concoct a book and tell them that it is from God, well then he wasn't sincere. And then if he was sincere, then he couldn't be doing this. Now, non-Muslim historians of religion, such as William Montgomery Watt, who have studied the life of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, uh, in, in great depth, they have concluded that the Prophet Muhammad was sincere. There was a time when uh, some who wanted to attack Islam and dreamed up a lot of excuses as to why Islam is spreading and how to 
tell their people about Islam, they came up with a lot of things, including the claim that Muhammad was a charlatan, he was a liar, and, uh, and so on. Uh, but of course now, the tide has turned and people have had an opportunity to study Islam from the original sources and they have concluded that the Prophet Muhammad was sincere. In other words, that when he said that this book came to him as a revelation from God, he really believed that. And uh, if we start with this point, then we exclude all claims uh, to, uh, on the general theme that he was concocting anything. He was sincere. Let's begin there. The second point is that uh, the Prophet Muhammad was incapable of uh, producing a book like the Quran. The Quran itself uh, uh, marks him off as being an unlettered person. Now notice that I'm not using the Quran here as though it is the word of God. That would be to prejudge the conclusion. But I'm using the Quran as a text that is available from the time of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, as is agreed on by secular non-Muslim historians. So using it as a contemporary document from the lifetime of the Prophet Muhammad, it gives us an upper edge in that whatever the Quran says of a biographical nature concerning the Prophet Muhammad can be taken prima facie as being true. For the very reason that had it not been true, someone would have, uh, would have objected to the information. In other words, if we do not take the Quran as the word of God, anyone would agree that the Quran is at least a document from the time of the Prophet Muhammad, close to the events that the Quran is speaking about. And when it speaks about the Prophet Muhammad, it furnishes important and significant biographical information about him. So when the Quran says that the Prophet Muhammad was unlettered, this is a very important piece of information. Now, others have tried to prove that the Prophet Muhammad was in fact lettered, like Anish Shirosh, for example, in his book, Islam Revealed. But none of his arguments actually hold up. Uh, recently, I was uh, sitting with a professor at the University of Toronto who has written a large article trying to prove that the Prophet Muhammad was lettered, in fact. Uh, and uh, when I challenged his arguments, he actually withdrew that conclusion and he said that's not his conclusion. He's just doing some studies and showing that, you know, the word ummi can mean this and that. So in sum, no one has been able to prove that the Prophet Muhammad was lettered and in fact uh, the contemporary document from his time marks him off as being unlettered and this is a biographical fact about him. Once we know that, we see that he was not capable of uh, composing a book like the Quran, because the Quran is a literary masterpiece. It uh, speaks about uh, all areas of human endeavor, whether it be private life, social, family life, uh, uh, international affairs, politics, economics. All of that is covered in the one book. Uh, moreover, uh, the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, uh, made a point of saying to his contemporaries that if they think that this book is forged, they should produce one like it. Now, the immediate challenge given to the people uh, was probably only uh, to the extent of saying to them, do you think that a man who has lived among you for so many years and is known to you to be a truthful and respectable person can now concoct a book like this? If you think it is easy to do it, imagine yourself doing that now. Now, most of us would not class ourselves 
as the pinnacle of uh, uprightness uh, in our communities. Only a few persons can be known to have that uh, kind of status in any community, the status that the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, had enjoyed. Uh, and yet, with our humble status, we cannot imagine ourselves concocting a book and then saying that it is from the Almighty God. So how can you imagine the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, doing that? So from many angles, we see that it was, uh, in fact, uh, beyond the capacity of the Prophet Muhammad uh, to have composed a, a book and then say it is from the Almighty God, much less to compose a book of such uh, magnitude and uh, literary excellence. My third point is that uh, when we study the psychology of the Prophet Muhammad and we look at the Quranic text, we see that the Quranic text is not coming from the Prophet's own psychology. This is an important point because someone may say that even though the Prophet was sincere, it, perhaps, just perhaps, the Quran was welling up in his subconscious mind, a product of his own mind, and he just simply sincerely thought that this is a revelation given to him by the Almighty God. What we find instead is that when we examine the Prophet Muhammad and we examine the Quran, we see that they are two different things. We see that the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, was a very humble individual. He did not carry any airs about himself. He did not seek uh, leadership among the people. If he came to a gathering, he just uh, took a seat wherever he found one. He did not assume this kind of uh, uh, flair of the emperors who have guards all around them and so on. Now, given that humble position, what do we find in the Quran? In the Quran, we find that uh, the speaker of the Quran is saying, we created the heavens and the earth, and so on. You have here a different speaker than the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. Moreover, you find that the Quran is addressing the Prophet, call, ref, calling out to him, Ya ayyuhan Nabi, O Prophet. The Quran uh, instructs him what to do, commands him, Ballil, Utlu, Kul. The Quran even uh, on occasion criticizes him for some of his actions. Like for example, when he turned away from the blind man. The Quran says, Abba He frowned and he turned away. The Quran is teaching him a new way of doing things. The Quran then is speaking to the Prophet Muhammad, and this obviously is not a product of his own mind. Now, if it were a product of his own mind, and is speaking to him and criticizing him in this way, you would have to say that the Prophet Muhammad is somehow slightly deranged. He is some sort of a madman. Uh, but we know from history that the Prophet Muhammad was not a madman. In every way, he was a very sane leader. He was a military uh, general. Uh, he was a politician par excellence. He, he was an uh, excellent statesman. In fact, someone has written a book entitled The 100, a ranking of the most influential uh, men of history, a book uh, written by Mike, Michael Hart. Uh, Michael Hart has ranked the number one person as Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam, and he gave the reasons for that, including the fact, as he said, that Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam, of all of these individuals, was the only individual who was successful in both the religious and secular spheres. So, for him to have been successful in the secular sphere 
he would have had to be a very sane individual, I put before you. I know people talk about religious nuts, and that's a different uh, issue. Uh, but uh, the Prophet Muhammad ﷺ was known to be a very sane and wise individual. And so, when we look at it from the psychological angle, we must conclude that the Qur'an is not a product of the Prophet's uh, own mind. Uh, or to put it simply, if the Qur'an was from the mind of the Prophet, he would have been a madman. Had he been a madman, he could not have produced a book of such literary excellence. So, in, in any case, he could not have been a madman. Now, let me go to a fourth point. The Quran speaks about past history, details, events that uh, the Quran says were not known to the Prophet Muhammad ﷺ, telling him, Tilka min al nuhiha ma kunta ladayhim. You were not uh, with, with, with them when such and such a thing happened, and so on. And the Quran is giving the details of all of that to the Prophet ﷺ. And independent investigations show that the Quran was true in what it detailed. For example, Dr. Maurice Bouquet in his book, The Bible, The Quran and Science, uh, describes the history of the Pharaoh uh, of Egypt or the various pharaohs that lived in Egypt over time, identifies the pharaoh from the time of Musa salam, looks at uh, the reports about the death of the pharaoh, looks at what the Bible says concerning pharaoh, and how the pharaoh drowned, and we get the impression that he just simply perished and was left in the ocean. And the Quran now dares to say to the pharaoh, that Allah speaks to the pharaoh and says, this day we save you in your body that you may be an, a sign for those who come after you. And now Dr. Bouquet details the discovery of the body of the Pharaoh and uh, shows that in fact the Quran's mention of the saving of the body of the Pharaoh was in fact an accurate detail about past history, something that was not known to the Prophet Muhammad And so we see that this Qur'an could not have been coming from the subconscious mind of the Prophet because it's giving us specific historical information of the type that would not have been available to him at the time. If he were going by the Bible which was there available before him, he might have said something to the effect that the body of the Pharaoh just simply perished there in the sea and that was the end of him. Fifth, we see that the Qur'an speaks about the future. And then the future turns out exactly as already detailed in the Qur'an. And since, uh, by definition, only God knows the future, human beings do not, uh, we can say with confidence that the Qur'an here furnishes further evidence that it is the Word of God. Hence my fifth point. The Qur'an speaks about the future. It tells us that this book is going to be preserved, that God has taken it upon himself to preserve this book. It tells us that the faith of Muhammad ﷺ will rank supreme. And indeed, it has ranked supreme. Intellectually, today, only Islam can stand up to scrutiny. Uh, the Qur'an tells us that Allah will save the Prophet Muhammad ﷺ from being killed by his enemies. And miraculously, this happened as well. Whereas some of the prophets were killed or even crucified. Who could tell in advance that the Prophet Muhammad ﷺ would not be captured by the enemies and killed by them? So, uh, all of the prophecies in the Qur'an add up to a conclusive whole that the Qur'an speaks about the future and then the future turns out exactly as already detailed in the text. And since human beings do not know the future, 
we say that this here is a revelation from the Almighty God. My sixth point is that uh, in modern times, many scientists have found that what the Quran already said 1400 years ago contains knowledge that they are now discovering. And this is amazing. The Quran is not a scientific textbook. It, it, it does not have the purpose of teaching us how the heavens go. It teaches us how to go to heaven. The Quran is not here to describe the physical world, but the Quran talks about our humble beginnings and our humble stations and about the greatness of the Almighty God. And because of that, the Quran describes the things around us to call our attention to the magnificence of God's creation. It calls our attention to our humble beginnings, how we turned, started out from a drop of sperm and so on. In all of these descriptions, what scientists are now noticing is that the descriptions, although they have been put in a simple way such that they could be understood by the 7th century Arabic speaker, at the same time, they are spoken from the point of view of somebody who has much deeper knowledge than was available at the time. You see, sometimes when you hear a speaker, uh, you can form some impression of the intelligence of the speaker or uh, the breadth of his readings or the depth of his uh, education. If someone quotes Shakespeare, for example, without even mentioning Shakespeare, if he gives you a line from Shakespeare and you know that line to be from Shakespeare, you say, oh, it looks like this guy has read up on Shakespeare. You form an impression of uh, the breadth of study of this individual. Now, when you look at the Quranic terminology from the point of view of modern science, you cannot help but notice that uh, whoever is the author of this Quran must have known what we're talking about now. Because now, modern scientists uh, talk about the creation of the heavens and the earth uh, from a sim single beginning. And the Quran asks them, أَوَلَمْ يَرَ الَّذِينَ كَفَرُوا أَنَّ السَّمَابَاتِ وَالْأَرْضَ كَانَتَا رَتْقًا فَفَتَقْنَاهُمَا Don't the non-believers see that the heavens and the earth were one piece before we split them asunder. And we created from water every living thing. And today, scientists speak about living things coming out of water and water being the basis of living things. So when they look at the Quranic terminology, they cannot help but be amazed at the accuracy of the statements which are there in the Quran, but more so at the depth of knowledge which is contained in the simple expressions which are given there in the Qur'an. Now, the Qur'an speaks also about uh, the growth and development of the human baby. And in this area, uh, researchers have found uh, the, the accuracy of the statements to be stunning. For example, Surah 23 uh, tells us uh, about the various stages. In fact, this is mentioned in many different places in the Qur'an, but it's captured in a nutshell in Surah 23, in a way that is not captured elsewhere. I want to read for you the, the Arabic of the verses, starting with verse number 12 up to 16, and then we will look at some of the details of it and what uh, scientists have said concerning that. أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم ولقد خلقنا الإنسان من سلالة من طين ثم جعلناه نطفة في قرار مكين ثم خلقنا نطفة علقة فخلقنا العلقة مضغة فخلقنا المضغة فخلقنا المضغة عظاما فكسونا العظام لحما ثم أنشأناه خلقا آخر 
فكذا فتبارك الله أحسن الخالقين. Now, here we have in a few verses some details about how human beings are created. وَلَقَدْ خَلَقْنَا الْإِنْسَانَ مِنْ سُلَالَةٍ مِنْ تِينَ Allah has created human beings from a quintessence of, of teen, of mud. Now we know this to be referring to the original creation of human beings. ثُمَّ جَعَلْنَاهُ نُطْفَةً فِي قَرَارِ مَقِينَ Then Allah has placed him as a tiny drop in a safe and secure lodging. Now we know this is referring to the creation of the rest of us. This is how we are started out, as a tiny drop. In a karar makin, in a secure lodging. Tiny drop, nutfa. In fact, Dr. Bouquet says that when you trace back the root of this word nutfa, it refers to a selection out of the whole. For example, if you have a bucket of water, you pour everything out, there is going to remain in that bucket some droplets. That is referred to as nutfa. It is not the whole thing, but a selection from the whole. And indeed, uh, scientists tell us that out of the millions uh, in a particular event, it is only one that uh, penetrates the egg and uh, gives rise to the uh, formation of the human baby. So it is really a nutfa, a selection from, from the whole. Moreover, it says, then we have made from that nutfa alaqa. Thumma khalaqnan nutfata alaqa. Allah has made the nutfa into alaka. What is alaka? Alaka can be uh, described as a thing that clings. From the verb uh, alaka ya'lak, a thing that hangs, a thing that hangs, or a thing that clings. In fact, uh, an alaka in Arabic is a leech, the thing that sticks on your foot if you stand in the swamps for too long. Now, it is interesting that no matter how you look at it, the term alaka or alak is a fitting description. Because the outward shape of the human embryo at 24 days old actually resembles a leech in outward appearance. Moreover, because of the intricate uh, formation of, uh, of, of blood vessels within this uh, substance at this early stage, uh, one can describe it as a clot of blood. And there too, some translations have, have given that, that rendering for the verses that use the term alaka. And uh, we find that the human embryo at this early stage gets implanted on the womb of the mother or within the womb of the mother on the uterine wall in such a way that you can describe it as clinging or sticking or hanging on for dear life. And hence... It doesn't matter from which angle you look at it, the word that is used here in the Quran to describe this stage is a highly accurate term. One of the scholars, a professor from the University of Toronto, Dr. Keith Moore, has actually advanced a case in a book he has written, a case for the use of the Quranic terminology instead of the current medical terminologies that describe the various stages of the growth of the human embryo because he finds them to be so accurate. The next stage is that the alaka is changed into a mudga. Thumma We have changed the, uh, the thing that clings into a mudga. What is a mudga? A mudga is a chewed lump. Now, 
Uh, at 28 days old, the human embryo starts to uh, show what are called somites, the formation of the what is, will be the, eventually the backbone or the, that uh, skeletal portion. Dr. Moore has shown that if you take a plasticine model of the human embryo and if you bite into it putting teeth marks on it, those teeth marks and the whole embryo altogether resembles uh, the, the real human embryo at 28 days old. And uh, one might marvel at the accuracy of that description as a chewed lump, and might, one might wonder, well, didn't Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa uh, have a chance to look at aborted babies and see what they look like? Uh, the trick in here is to realize that at 28 days old, the, the period that is being described here, the human embryo is no larger than a grain of rice. And at this stage, it could not have been studied without the help of a microscope. I wonder if the fan is getting into the microphone. You think so? Because hmm? I hear this humming. So, uh, it's better, isn't it? The human embryo at that stage could not have been studied without the help of a, of a microscope. In fact, on one occasion, Dr. Moore was asked about this. Is it possible that Muhammad had made all of these studies? And uh, he said, well, the only way possible is if he had a microscope uh, hidden in a tent somewhere. He used that to make all of his discoveries and then hid his microscope in the sand forever and kept it a secret. We know that the microscope, as pointed out by Dr. Moore, was invented a thousand years after Muhammad wasallam. It was in the 17th century, and it would be in the 18th century when the microscope would now be used for studies on the growth and development of the human embryo. So these descriptions which are given in the Quran are of such a highly accurate nature that we have to reel over and say, that it looks like this really is a revelation from the Almighty God. And in fact, this is a conclusion that Dr. Moore himself has publicly stated, although he has never confessed to being a Muslim. And he's not alone in, in, in admitting the truth of the Quranic statements. Other scientists in related fields have also joined him in doing that. For example, Dr. Tivian Prasad from the University of Manitoba in Winnipeg, uh, in, in Canada. And we have in the United States Dr. Marshall Johnson, Dr. Joe Lee Simpson, and Dr. Gerald Joringer, who are experts in various fields such as genetics, uh, cell biology, uh, obstetrics, and gynecology. They have all conferred with, uh, with Dr. Moore on these findings. They say that these uh, are amazing pieces of information that they don't expect to be in a book from the 7th century. Uh, also, a, a professor from the University of Thailand, Dr. Tejata Tejasin, was in a, a medical conference uh, shared by other scholars who were discussing uh, these issues. And at the end, he said that uh, these facts are so amazing that uh, nothing is left for him except to say, La ilaha illallah, Muhammadur Rasulullah. And he accepted the shahada on that occasion. So then, in summary, we're dealing here with, if, as you will remember, my sixth point that in modern times, scientists are looking at the Quran and they're finding that the Quran is highly accurate from their modern scientific standpoint. They're finding that even though the Quran is not a scientific textbook, whatever science it touches upon and describes contains information that they are now discovering with their modern tools and therefore uh, they see nothing uh, contrary to the description here 
that Muhammad is a messenger from God. They think he must have been getting this as a revelation from the Almighty God. And so my sixth point carries. My seventh point is that the Quran uh, offers a challenge to people to find uh, any error in this book. And uh, in fact, although many people have wasted their lives trying to find errors in the Quran, nobody has come up with anything that is a genuine error in the Quran. There is a certain website that uh, the last time I looked listed 49 errors in the Quran, 49 contradictions. And uh, when I looked at them, I found that not even one is really a genuine contradiction in the Quran. They have some silly things, like, for example, uh, if you uh, say that Jesus is, doesn't have a father and uh, Mary is the father, uh, mother of Jesus, then uh, who is his father? So this is a contradiction in the Quran or something so ridiculous. Uh, one thing that caused a problem for some people uh, was uh, their description about the inheritance portions. Uh, they say, okay, the Quran gives that inheritance portion and that inheritance portion and that inheritance portion. If you add up the portions, they come up to more than 100%. How can you divide a person's estate and uh, have, it, uh, have the, the portions add up to more than 100% of the original estate? So it looks like initially they have a point until when we study the verses that they're referring to carefully, as I've shown uh, and is there on my website, uh, the verses are not contradictory, but they have been misunderstood by the missionaries who have an axe to grind and are trying to prove a, a point that is not really a point. And so in sum, we can say that the Quran makes a challenge to people to find errors in this book to show that it is not from God. Now, if we think about how the Quran was revealed to the Prophet ﷺ over that period of uh, 23 years, we would realize that easily it would have had a lot of errors in the Quran. And why is it that there are not errors and contradictions in the book? So the Quran asks us, Have they not pondered on the Quran? If it had been from any other than God, they would have found therein much discrepancy. And so indirectly there is a challenge to people. Think about what the Quran is saying to you. If it uh, is not from God, you will find much discrepancy in it. Now, when a book dares to declare like this that it is free of discrepancy, it is a challenge to human beings to find errors in it. You know how human beings think. If I say it is now 9.47, look how many brothers will look at their watches to see if it's really 9.47. Because that's how we are. We just want to check the information for ourselves. And if someone says, here is a book that has no error, somebody will start looking at it to see, maybe there is an error, isn't it? How could there be a book without errors? I mean, come on. Can you imagine writing an essay and giving it to your professor and saying, this has no errors? <laughs> You're just daring him to find something to prove you wrong. Don't do it. If the Prophet Muhammad wasallam were writing the book on his own, he wouldn't even put a statement like that in the book because that would just dare people to try and prove him wrong and uh, then his whole career would be at stake. But in, in, in the end, we see that the Quran turns out to be exactly what it claims to be, a revelation from the Almighty God. My eighth point now is that uh, the Quran is inimitable. Uh, whenever everything else is said and done, I spoke about the initial challenge given to the Prophet ﷺ, but now I'm taking it further as a separate point here. And, and indeed, it is a separate point because scholars have noted over time that the Quran really is an inimitable document. Uh, um, 
Dr. Uh, Abdullah Draz has written a book on this, and it's available widely in, in public bookshops now. You might want to get a, a copy of it. I don't remember the title of the book, uh, but the, title of the, the author's name is Draz, D-R-A-Z. Uh, now, in this book, he has outlined many features of the Quran that show the inimitable nature of the Quran, the way in which the Quran expresses things, the sublime wonder that the Quran creates in the mind of the reader when the reader reads it. Uh, really, uh, there were people in the time of the Prophet Muhammad wasallam who had excelled in producing literary compositions in the Arabic language. But when the Quran came on the scene, all of those faded by comparison. They were no match for the Quran. Now we should ask, how did this uh, book come to this man who was claiming it to be a revelation from the Almighty God and it uh, demonstrates itself to be this uh, literary masterpiece? We have here a further evidence that the Quran is a revelation uh, from the Almighty God. To give you a simple example that you can appreciate very easily, think of the su- of Surah Al-Ikhlas. It is a very simple surah. It expresses the core beliefs of Islam, and you can find that there is a constant rhythm, a rhyme, a beat throughout it. Hmm? And everything is in place. No word extra, and nothing short of what needs to be said. So, cool, starting with that. Say, it is a directive to the Muslim how to give da'wah to the, to the Christian. Say, kul, huwallahu ahad. He is Allah the one. That is our first statement of belief shared by Muslims and shared by Christians. We start with what is common and we see where that leads us. Allahu samad, Allah is eternal. They will agree with that just as we will. Lam yalid wa lam yulad. It follows by logical necessity that if Allah is only one, and if he is a samad, then he does not beget nor is he begotten. Because look, if he begets, then he will have a child, and the child would have to be godlike. So you would have two of them. And since there is only one, you cannot have two. And uh, if he was yulad, if he himself was given birth to, that means he would have a father. If he has a father, the father would be older than him, wiser than him, more eternal than he is. And you cannot have one who is more asamad than asamad, you see? And so, if you start with uh, Allahu Ahad, Allahu Samad, it follows by logical necessity, Lam Yalid, Walam Yulad. And also, it follows, Walam Yakullahu Kufuwan Ahad. And there is none comparable unto him. There's none like him. You see, we can compare two human beings. One is stronger than the other. But there is nothing to compare God to because he is uh, Al-Ahad and he is As-Samad. A, a short surah that rhymes throughout, Kul Allahu Ahad, Allahu samad Lam Yalid, Walam Yulad, Walam Yakullahu Kufuwan Ahad. There is a constant rhyme and beat throughout it and everything is in place. Nothing excess, nothing short. And that is just an example of the literary masterpiece that the Quran is, just looking at a short surah like that. So, now, altogether, I have given you eight points showing that the Quran really is what it claims to be. It is a revelation from the Almighty God. And since this is what the Prophet Muhammad wasallam left behind, this proves itself not only as the uh, revelation from God, but it proves that the Prophet Muhammad really is a prophet and messenger of God. Now, there are two other points that I want to uh, put before you. One of them is a simple one, and one is a complex one. The simple point is this, that having come this far, somebody may be wondering, what about all this history, what about all this information about science, I don't know about all that stuff. 
how can I know if the Quran is the revelation from God? Well, there is a way of testing different things. If you want to know something if, if, to be good music, you have to listen to it first. If you want to know something to be of good taste, you have to actually taste it. If you want to know if something is the word of God, you have to actually read it. Now, if someone comes to this book with a clean heart, with an open mind, really seeking God and asking God, really, if this is your book, guide me to it. And if he starts reading it, he will find, in fact, that this is the book of God. Many have detailed their experiences. And they have said that having read the Quran, this is the thing that brought them into Islam. For example, there's a book written by a Christian lady in the United States of America, Carol Anway, a book entitled Daughters of Another Path. She tries in this book to trace the reasons why uh, American women are coming to Islam. And many of them have come for a variety of reasons, and they give their stories in that book. But uh, many of them also tell us that it is their reading of the Quran. Someone says, like, you know, I was taking a course on, Islam, on world religions in, in high school or in college, and then I became intrigued, and one day I was reading the Quran, and it really hit me that this is the word of God, and she embraced Islam. So what is it about the Quran that has this attraction? Read it and find out. The other point, as I said, uh, and the last point, the tenth point I want to make is a bit of a complex one. And uh, I don't know if you're ready for that now because it involves a little bit of thought on your part. And you guys are looking tired. Are you tired? To make sure you're not, how about if we all get up for a minute and just uh, shake about just a minute? Yeah, let's do that. Make sure we got the... Because the blood for, for this... <laughs> There you go. Yeah, don't, don't be afraid to stretch. Yeah, yeah. Okay, got you. I'm glad we did that because for this exercise, the blood really has to be flowing all the way to the top. Hmm? Now, what has been discovered recently is that the Quran has embedded within it some mathematical features, and they are now just simply coming to light. In fact, this area of studies uh, on the Quran has fallen into some disrepute because one of the early proponents of this uh, made claims for, for himself which are false and which are unacceptable. A certain man in the United States of America of Egyptian origin, Dr. Rashad Khalifa, had claimed to have discovered a mathematical system in the Quran. In fact, uh, his claims, as we find now, uh, have uh, been based on a mixture of truth and falsehood. There were some things that he said were true and some things were absolutely false. And uh, many have uh, written and, and exposed his errors. For example... Uh, Majlis al-Ulama of South Africa has written a book called The Quran and the Fallacy of the Computer Concoction. And uh, Dr. Bilal Phillips has written a book on the 19th theory, uh, hoax or heresy. And he has shown that uh, many of the counts that Dr. Khalifa has put forward were actually fictitious. Uh, to put it in a nutshell, Dr. Khalifa had claimed that there is a system of 19 uh, running throughout the Quran in such a way uh, that everything seems to be turning out to, to multiples of 19. But in order to get his multiples of 19, it was found that he was fudging the data. So uh, in some cases, he overcounted. In some cases, he undercounted. And he made the counts to suit his uh, theory. 
Whereas, he's supposed to start from a neutral position, he has no conclusion, he finds that his counts lead to a certain conclusion. And then, uh, not being satisfied uh, with that, sometimes he even wanted to modify the text of the Quran to prove his theory. So, he started out saying that his theory proves that the Quran is right. And then he ended up trying to make the Quran prove that his theory is right. <laughs> so, he got it all mixed up. And if that were not enough, uh, he, further on, he further on went on to, prove, to claim that he is a messenger from God to reveal all of this information to the people of the computer age. And then he wanted to find his name in the Quran, and he did find it because the word Rashad occurs in the Quran, and the word Khalifa also occurs in the Quran. So, and he is Rashad Khalifa, so his name occurs in the Quran. Uh, moreover, he had to deal with the problem that the Prophet Muhammad ﷺ said that he is the last of all of the Prophets. He said, La Nabiya Ba'di. And uh, he is the Aqib, he is the last stone that gets put into the house to complete it. So what do you do with all these sayings? He said, we don't have to listen to any of the hadith, we just go with the Quran alone. As if he has not read the Quran, which tells you that you must follow the Prophet Muhammad ﷺ. And even if you were to ignore all of those hadiths, what do you do with the verse of the Quran which says, وَلَكِنْ رَسُولَ اللَّهِ وَخَاتَمَ النَّبِيِّينَ But he is the messenger of Allah and the seal of all of the prophets. So no matter how we looked at it, uh, Dr. Khalifa uh, had made serious blunders and he had made claims for himself which are not true. And uh, we have to distance ourselves uh, from his particular claims. Nevertheless, some of the features of the Quran that he had pointed out are true. As I said, he was basing his theories on a mixture of truth and falsehood. But because of his exa exaggerated claims, the whole idea of looking at the Quran from this uh, point of view of discovering numerical patterns in it uh, fell into disrepute. But subsequently, other researchers came to the fore and they studied the Quran. And even if we exclude everything that Dr. Khalifa had said, there are other discoveries about the Quran that are so noteworthy that when we put them all together, we see here that we have an impressive case by itself that the Quran is a revelation from the Almighty God. And I want to share with you some of these findings. Some of them are detailed in this book entitled Scientific Miracles of the Glorious Quran by Muhammad Sami, Muhammad Ali, and translated by Abdus Samad Kail, K-Y-L-E. You will find this wherever Muslim books are, are sold. And uh, uh, some of the information has been put on the internet and attributed to Dr. Tariq Aswaidan. So if you do a search on the internet, you may find some of this as well, which I will now detail before you. Now, there are some... Um, words in the Quran which are used in such a way that it draws your, your attention to, to the word. For example, we mentioned a verse which says that uh, if they were to ponder the Quran, they would find much ikhtilaf in this Quran. Much ikhtilaf. Now, the word they're used in that verse is ikhtilafan because it's uh, the word ikhtilaf, it's the eighth form uh, of that verbal noun, uh, and it's in the accusative form if we explain that grammatically. That particular form of the word, as Gary Miller pointed out, occurs only once in the Quran. Now, Gary Miller uh, tells us that logicians recently became interested in the difference between the use of a word and the mention of a word. I want to explain that very quickly. If I say Toronto is a big city, then we are using the word Toronto to refer to the city, yes? Toronto is a big city. We're using the word Toronto to name something. 
But if I say Toronto has seven letters, now I'm not using the word, I'm just mentioning the word. I'm talking about the word itself. So logicians became interested in the use of words and the mention of words. They became interested in that because people have tied themselves up into logical knots because they did not differentiate between the use of the word and the mention of the word. So he said that as a logician himself, he wanted to see if the Quran draws this distinction. If the Quran actually recognizes the distinction between the use and the mention of a word. Now think of this word, ikhtilafan. If, they had, if the Quran had been from anyone other than Allah, they would have found in it much ikhtilafan. Now we know what the use of the word is. It's referring to something that we will call ikhtilaf, differences, confusion, uh, uh, contradictions. But what about the mention of the word itself? How many times is this word mentioned in the Quran? He was interested to find that out, and he found that it is only once in the entire Quran, in this particular mansub or accusative form. So he makes the point, if, if, the, if the Quran had used this word a number of times, some clever Alec would come and say, look, there is a lot of ikhtilafan in the Quran, referring to the mention of the word itself. But the Quran has already gone ahead of the game here by mentioning the word only, only once. And you see the point here. Now, uh, the Quran talks about uh, Isa alayhi salam being like Adam alayhi salam. Inna masala Isa in the lahika masali Adam. Jesus is like Adam. And we know what that means. We know that uh, they're both creatures of Allah. But there is another way, as pointed out by Gary Miller, in which Adam and Isa are similar. Both names are mentioned in the Quran exactly 25 times. Now today it becomes easy for us to find out how many times a word is used in the Quran because in 1938, Fuad Abdul-Baki prepared this document called Al-Mu'ajam Al-Fihris Fi Al-Fazil Quran. It's all in Arabic. It's a listing of all of the words in the Quran and where we can locate those words. So now, having a document like this makes it easy for us to go to it and say, oh, that word occurs that many times in the Quran. And if we're interested in another word, we can check it as well. What has been found is that there are certain words in the Quran which are used as antonyms of each other, and they both occur in the Quran an equal number of times. Take, for example, man and woman. Opposite terms, man and woman. And uh, yesterday, Brother Abu Muntasir made the point that... Uh, uh, in, in, in discussing gender equity, the question is asked about equal pay for work of equal value. Yes, everyone wants to prove that men and women are equal. Now, the Quran uses the term rajul for man 24 times, and imra'a for woman also 24 times. Now, we know that shaitan and malaika are contrasting terms. Shaitan used in the singular in the Quran 68 times. Malaika, angels, used in the Quran also 68 times. Now what gives us this match? Dunya and akhirah are contrasting terms. This life and the life hereafter. Dunya used 115 times. Akhirah used also 115 times. Now you must appreciate how difficult it would have been for the Prophet Muhammad to write a book and have these uh, features in that book. You know, for him to do something like this, he would have to have uh, something like a computer mind. And he would have to open up his mind into uh, something like a Microsoft Excel worksheet program. And he would have to have a number of rows and columns. And uh, in the first column, he would list all of the verses he's recited so far. Then you have a column for man, a column for woman, column for uh, shaitan, column for malaika, column for... And every time he recites a verse, if there is a man mentioned, he has to click once in the man column. If there's dunya, he has to click once in the dunya column. Pay attention to the totals to make sure they're coming out right. And to say that this happened is really preposterous. 
In fact, uh, we see here evidence before us that the Quran is a revelation from the Almighty God. There is more. Uh, the, the Quran makes a, a contrast between uh, dry land and sea. Remember uh, Sheikh Abdullah Hakim telling us, Zahar al-Fasadu fil barwi wal-bahri bima kasabat nas. Corruption has occurred on land and sea because of the works of human hands. Hmm? Uh, now, land and sea, contrasted. The word for dry land in the Quran occurs 13 times. The word for sea, 32 times. And it just so happens that 13 to 32 is the approximate ratio of land to water on the surface of our globe. The word for month, shahar, occurs in the singular exactly 12 times. And notice, I'm not saying that the, the Quran says that there are 12 months in a year. The Quran says that, but that's not so spectacular. Everybody knows that. What happens, though, is if you write a book, and then you go back in hindsight and say, let me count the number of times I use the word month, and it turns out to be exactly 12. You say, that's a coincidence. But then you count again, how many times did I use the word day? And that too turns out to be amazing. In the Quran, the word day in the singular, yawm in Arabic, occurs exactly 365 times. Now, does that occur by coincidence? Let me remind you of how difficult it is for numbers to work out by coincidence. If you study probability theory, you know that if I flip a coin and I want it to come up heads, the probability of that is one out of two because there are two possibilities that could come out, and I want one out of the two. If I want to flip the coin twice and get heads both times, the probability is now one out of four, which means I have to flip it on the average four times to get my desired results. If I want it to come out three heads in a row, I have to flip it eight times. It's one out of two times one out of two times one out of two. Half times half times half, one out of eight. If I want four uh, heads in a row, it's one out of 16. Five heads in a row, one out of 32. Six heads in a row, one out of 64. And it just gets exponential. Hmm? If I roll one, a dice and I wanted to come out six, one die, I wanted to come out six, the probability is one out of six. If I want two sixes in a row, it is one out of 36. If I want three sixes in a row, one out of 216. If I want four sixes in a row, one out of 1,296. In other words, I have to roll my dice 1,296 times on average in order to get four sixes in a row. So to get four sixes in a row is not just a simple task. If somebody gets four sixes in a row, you know, check that dice because it's probably fixed. And when we notice the numbers coming out like this in the Quran, have a closer look in the Quran because it's probably fixed. It is fixed. As we are discovering now, it's fixed by the Almighty God because no human being had a hand in fixing it. We're just discovering that information now. I have to wrap up this talk very quickly, but I want to offer you some more points. Wherever I've offered this, people have said this is mind-blowing, and they want to get a copy of a presentation that I prepared on this uh, and uh, some, some written work, which is now uh, coming to be available, uh, and which I can send to you by email. But very quickly... Um, there is a, 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 a center that has been set up for studying the Quran in detail, uh, known as the Center for Quranic Research in Palestine. Uh, their website is um, islamnoon.com, www.islamnoon.com. If you click on, click on that website, you will find some of the information which I'm now about to share with you. In fact, all of the remaining information which I'm going to share with you now. islamnoon.com. Now... Let me give you a historical reminder. Uh, a lot of Muslims have memorized the Quran. But if I ask you, you have memorized the Quran, 
How many people know, don't tell your friends and don't tell me the number, but how many of you, show me by raising your hand, how many of you know how many uh, surahs there are in the entire Quran? Okay, so I see several hands go up. Okay, but not all hands. Okay, people know the Quran, but they don't know how many surahs there are. Even though you have a printed text before you, and you can easily go to the end and you can see that one is surah number 114. That is the last surah in the Quran. So there are 114 surahs in the Quran. But people don't bother to check these things. What about when people just simply memorized it and they didn't have a written complete text before them? How would they know there's 114 surahs? If I ask you, how many surahs have you memorized? Now you start thinking, I've memorized what Duhan and Matin and what was the other one? You can't even remember what surahs you memorized. Now, of course, there might be a kid in the audience who just remember Kulhu Allah who had, and you can say, well, just one. <laughs> That's easy. But if you memorize a few, you can't even remember how many is it that you memorized. So how do people know how many surahs there are in the Quran when you don't have a printed text before you? Moreover, okay, so you memorize Kulhu Allah who had. How many of you know how many verses in that surah? Let me see your hands. Look how few hands go up now. You memorize it, but you never counted how many verses there are. And that shows you early on, Muslims would have memorized the Quran, but they don't know how many verses are, are, are in particular surahs. They're just four verses in surah uh, Ikhlas, which Surah uh, Allah had. Now, the discovery of how many verses are in, are in each surah would come later on. And when Muslims have, they started to write the text down, and then initially, uh, there is no space at the end of each uh, verse. The verses are just written flowing into each other. But one who is a trained reciter, he knows where to stop. He knows how to recite. He knows where a, where a verse ends. So eventually, as they copy the text, they would leave a space. And then they would fill the space with a little circle. They're beautifying the text. They're not changing anything. They're making it more user-friendly, easy on the eyes. Uh, how much time do I have? Five minutes? Wow. Mm. Okay. I have to... I have to wrap this up very quickly. I won't be able to offer you all of the information. I just got five minutes. But um, let me just uh, complete with, with one piece of information here. Uh, so, the discovery of how many verses are in a, are in a surah uh, would come later on as the text is written and rewritten because first they would put the circle in there, then they would num number every five circles, and then eventually number each one of the circles. So now it becomes easy. You have the printed text before you. You can go to each surah, and you can see what is the number of the surah, and how many verses are in that surah. becomes an easy task now for you. Now, I want you to do a little bit of homework. You know, the amount of lectures that we listen to, if we were to really capitalize on them, we'd have a BA degree at the, at the end of 10 years. You know, you listen to a half an hour of khutbah, every Friday, and hopefully it's in a language that you understand. Uh, and if you do a little bit of homework adding to that, uh, you should have a BA degree in Islamic studies at the end of 10 years. But uh, are you going to do some homework? Yeah? Okay, well, here's some homework for you. Now, uh, go to your Quranic text. Say this one, for example, is uh, very popular, the Taki, uh, Mufti, uh, Muhammad Taki Din al-Hilali translation, or any, any printed uh, copy of the Egyptian text that we are reading popularly in the Muslim world. Now, you open up your Microsoft Excel worksheet program as you, when you go home on Monday, and uh, in one column, list all of the numbers of all of the chapters in the Quran. So, uh, you would have the numbers from 1 up to 114. From 1 up to 114. Hmm. Now, have the program total up that column for you. So, you have the summations, hit the summation sign, you get a total. Now, I'll tell you the total in advance. It will be 6,555. 
I tell you the total for two reasons. One is that if you don't get that total, you'll know you did something wrong. Go back and check your numbers twice, okay? The second thing is I want you to memorize that number right now because I want you to be able to explain this to anyone that you meet down the street. So that number may strike you at first as being difficult to memorize, but it's simple really because it's a six triple five. Six triple five. Is that easy enough to remember? It's the kind of telephone number you'd like to have, right? Somebody asks you, what's your number? Six triple five with a big smile on your face. Six triple five. It's so easy, isn't it? Okay. Now, in the next column, list the number of verses in each one of those surahs. So you'd have to do a little bit of work here. You open Surah 1, you see that there are seven verses. You open Surah 2, there are 286 verses. Open Surah 3, there are 200 verses. Open Surah 4, there are 176 verses. Open Surah 5, there's 120 verses. Open Surah 6, 165, and so on. You list all of them there, up to 114. It does require a little bit of work, okay? Now, so you have a second column with all of the verses in each Surah. So if we were to total that column, we would have the total verses in the entire Quran, right? And that number you will see to be 6,236. Now that number may strike you as being difficult again, but it's not difficult. See? 6,236. It starts with 6,000. And you already memorized the 6,000 from the previous number. So that's over and done with. You don't have to do it all over again. It's 6,000. The previous number was 655, this is 6-something. Okay? You got it? And look at what is at the end. There's another 6 at the end, so you don't have to memorize that either. It's 6,236. It starts with a 6, it ends with a 6. Hmm? And look what's in between. There is a 2 and a 3. And 2 3s are 6. So just go 6, 2 3s are 6. And you got it. What's the number? 6 there you go, 6,236. Now, if anyone asks you how many verses are in the entire Quran, 6,236. That's so simple. So now you have those two columns and you have those two totals. What's the first total? 655. And the second total? Wonderful, fantastic. Now, look at your two columns and add up the numbers across. So you have Surah 1, there are seven verses. Put the total as eight. Surah 2, there are 286 verses, put the total as 288. Surah 3, there are 200 verses, put the total as 203. Okay? But there is a slight difference I want here. I want you to look at your results. If there are odd numbers, put them in one column. And if there are even numbers, put them in another column. Alright? So now, <clears throat> let's see, look at the numbers and see where they go. So Surah 1 has 7 verses, the total is 8, and that goes in which column? Even number column. Surah 2 has 286 verses, so the total is 288, that goes in which column? Even number column. Surah 3 has 200 verses, the total is 203, so that goes in the? Odd column. Wonderful. So now, if you do that with all of, this, all of the surahs, then you will have two columns, one of odd numbers, one of the even numbers. If you look at the total in the odd number column, it will be exactly 655. 6,555. Now, how does that come about? By some remarkable coincidence or by a designed plan? 
Here, all we have done is we have taken some surahs together with their surah num- with, with the number of verses in the surahs, and we total them up and we get exactly this result. And then what about the other column, the even number column? If you total that, you will find that the total is now 6,236, which is the number of verses in the entire Quran. And we get that total by just totaling up for some surahs, the surah numbers with the number of verses in that surah. Now you might ask, why did we just look at it from this particular angle? Why would anyone be interested in separating odd numbers and even numbers? If one is interested in computer programming, then you will know that uh, computer data transfer of information requires a a binary transfer of information where each bit of information is recorded either as a zero or as a one. And if you're transmitting a string of information, you want to put a check bit in there to make sure that in that string of information, if there is an error in recording a zero as a one or a one as a zero, uh, that error will be detected by putting in either an even parity code or an odd parity code depending on the programmer such that when you add up the whole sequence of numbers, if you want it to come out even, it should be even, and if there's a mistake, it will be detected because you'll need two mistakes in order to be undetected. Any one mistake, and you will find that your odd number gets changed to an even, or an even number gets changed to an odd. When you look at this chart that you have now, you will find that if you change one of the numbers, your totals will be way out of whack. And it seems that what has happened here is that whoever designed the Quran in the first place put within it this mathematical structure such that we will discover it later on and today we can speak about it and we will notice that this error check bit has already been there in the Quran in the first place. Such that if anyone had changed any one of the surahs or changed one verse within any one of the surahs or even mixed up the verses by putting one surah ahead of itself, these numbers would not have come out like this. And so we have before us here one of the most grand demonstrations of the Quran as the word of Allah. Because the discovery of the verses which is within each surah has only come to us as a matter of hindsight as we study the Quran now in retrospect. It is not something that was known to human beings. It is now being discovered. I'm not saying that this is the only way in which the Quran has been read. Nor am I saying that this is the only way of numbering verses in the, in the Quran. But this numbering of the Quran, Quranic verses that we have before us date, dates back all the way to the reading of Hafs from Asim, from the second century of Islam. And this is acknowledged by non-Muslim historians. For example, Richard Bell and William Montgomery Watt in their book Introduction to the Quran tell us that the Egyptian edition of the Quran, which is what we're holding in our hands today, has the verse numberings according to the reading of Hafs from Asim. So for centuries the Quran has been read like this and the verses have been numbered like this. And we are finding that this numbering shows a mathematical plan. Now we must ask, this here is something about the Quran even if somebody tries to deny it, it is still there. It is an external feature of the Quran, rather an internal feature that is externally discoverable by anyone today. So we must ask, how did that come about? Did that come about by coincidence or by a pre-plan? We must conclude that it came about by a pre-plan. Coincidences do not come about like that. If, if my visa bill totals $6,555 and your visa bill also totals $6,555, we'll both be hitting the roof because that's too much money. We cannot pay that. 
But we should wonder why this coincidence. And then if, on the other hand, my MasterCard bill totals 6236 and your MasterCard bill totals 6236 we're going to call the companies and find out who's fixing this number to come out like that. It doesn't come about like that by coincidence. So now, we have this coincidence or apparent coincidence in the Quran. Is it a coincidence or by pre-plan? It is by pre-plan. Now, is it a pre-plan on the part of some human being or a revelation from God? We must conclude that it's a revelation from God because no human being planned it to come out this way. And so, I don't have time for the rest of information, but I think that will suffice. That's enough for now. And uh, if we have more time, inshallah, during the uh, seminars, we will try to deal with some of the rest of the information, if you're interested and if that is appropriate for those seminars. For now, I want to bid you assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Wa akhir da'wan alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen. Shukran, khairan for your patient listening. I'm sorry we didn't have time for questions, but inshallah, we'll deal with your questions in the uh, seminar uh, slots. I would like to thank Prabhu Shabir for informative and inspiring talk. As he has just mentioned, we don't have time for the question and answers right now. But the papers that have been handed out to you, please write down the questions. And before you leave, pass it on to the stewards. And inshallah, we'll host the questions most likely on Sunday, inshallah. I'd like to remind you that the next session, next talk will take, start at 10.45. The topic is the nature of good and evil, and it will be done by Sheikh Jafar Idris. It's a key topic, and we request all of the brothers and sisters to be on time. Zakhla khair.